Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 260, What Makes a Successful Character by Nancy Cress, a Paradise Icon Lecture. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. Man, we have been so blessed with so many giveaways recently uh, for our newsletter subscribers. Um, I'm starting to get them confused. For this following week, we have five ebook copies of Colin F. Barnes' Salt, a post apocalyptic thriller. We just reviewed that on Monday. Wednesday, we'll have a behind the scenes by Colin, um, a guest post on kind of a, you know, a crowded genre of post-apocalyptic fiction and how he made it different by making the survivors of civilization on a flotilla and uh, how that would make the story different. Yes, it is better than Waterworld, so there you go. Um, and on top of those, for our giveaway, we have three copies of the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 8, edited by Jonathan Strahan. Um, there are no restrictions on that, and that and those are paper copies. Um, so, worldwide entry this time. Woohoo! I don't think there's any restriction from Colin either, since he's from the UK, and he'll be emailing you those copies. Colin does a great job. He was on the podcast a little bit ago. He is mailing out signed copies to people who review Salt within the first week. Um, <laughs> oh boy, I hope I'm not getting Colin in over his head by announcing that. But my point in saying that is subscribe to his newsletter and you will find out about all these goodies. Um, he's got another one coming up in a month, he says. We're going to have um, some new segments coming up, uh, kind of shorter segments to go with our podcast. Uh, and that's because I met some pretty talented girls who I'm going to be doing Q&As with. One of them, Christy Sharish, and I've never said her name out loud before. I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> she, ha she has a doctorate in zoology. She responded to my call out for more reviewers and guest posts. And uh, so I'm going to shoot some questions her, her way. Um, She's a Canadian science fiction author. She's got a deal with Simon & Schuster to release, I think, early 2015. So anyway, if you have questions for her, um, go ahead and email them to the show at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Melanie Metters, the publicist for Ragnarok Publications, is also a freelance publicist, and I'm going to be asking her some questions on... Um, you know, the type of advice she gives authors on how to better market themselves. So if you have questions for her, again, just email the show. Man, we have some really cool guests coming up. Uh, for sure lined up, Michael J. Martinez and Jeff Saliards are going to be next week. We're going to have a big giveaway for them. And let's see, Will McIntosh got an okay from him today. So I just need to schedule that. His book, Defenders, is awesome. I am hmm, about 30% through, and uh, it's just so refreshing. 
I've never read them before, and I'm so glad that I found out about them. If there's somebody that you would like to see on the show, someone that's releasing a book in the next few months, send me an email. I'm curious who you'd like to see on, and uh, will do my best to accommodate that. This is the first time that I've recorded an intro while babysitting my son, and he hasn't made a peep. I got him to sleep. Oh, this night is going so well. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. I left in some silent time. <laughs> um, nap time? No. Uh, towards the middle to end of the podcast, um, Nancy Crest in our workshop at ICON in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, she gave us some work to do. And so there's some filler time that I left in there in case you're listening to this and you also want to either think about your characters or write down some notes. I understand this may not be the best if you are listening on the road and there's dead space. Sorry about that. Uh, Not sure what else to do at this point, but there's not much. There's only once or twice I think that I did that for a minute or two, but... Anyway, I probably scared y'all off. Enjoy the show! Woohoo! What I want to cover this morning, first of all, is what makes a successful character. And second, how you get all of that on the page once you decide what is your character going to be. So let me start by talking about what I think are the four attributes of a successful fictional character. First of all, the character needs to be an individual, not a stereotype. But I want to add several qualifications on this, because if it's a story is very short, you obviously haven't got a lot of time to create a lot of backstory and a lot of quirky individual characteristics. and the, lo- the general rule, the longer your story, the more individual your character needs to be. If you're writing a novel, this needs to be somebody we, we find that we haven't seen a million times before. If you're writing a very short story, then the character becomes almost an archetype and is somebody that is representative in a way of every man and is less less individual, but still should not necessarily be the stock starship captain or the stock um, all-knowing detective or whatever whatever your genre is, the fiery princess. Mm-hmm. We, we, you, know, you, need, you need to think a little bit deeper about who this character is. And here's one way to go to think about this, another way to think about individuality. And I'm indebted to C.S. Lewis for this, which is that you should have either an imaginary toad in a real garden or a real toad in an imaginary garden. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. If your setting is really exotic and weird and strange, an imaginary garden, then you can do with a more ordinary kind of character as a contrast and as our guide through it. Think of Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. Alice is a normal little Victorian girl. She's an ordinary child because we need to have something to hang on to as a guide through this very, very strange place. If, on the other hand, you're setting your story in rural Iowa or some other sort of um, ordinary garden, and by that I mean it could be New York City, it could be anywhere that we're familiar with already, then your character could be a little more of a weird toad. Um, 
imaginary toad because then we already understand the setting more easily and, and the floridness and weirdness can flourish in your character. So I think that those are pre- that's a pretty safe guideline. Think about the kind of setting, that, especially if you're writing fantasy. Frodo is an ordinary sort of hobbit. We can understand Frodo. Um, we can even understand Sam, Gamgee. They're, they're ordinary kinds of people that are easy to relate to because there's going to be so many wonders all around them. So that's another way to think about your individual character. And, 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 and when I'm done with the attributes, I will come into getting to know that individual character and creating them. But for now, individuality is the first attribute of a successful character. Okay. The second one is plausible. They have to be consistent with their place and their time. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have somebody who's a misfit. In fact, most successful fiction characters are a misfit of some sort or another. But we have to believe they're going to exist in that time. I'm reading Nicola Griffith's latest novel right now, Hild. It's a historical novel about Hilda of Whitby. It's getting a lot of press, and the writing is terrific because, of course, she's Nicola Griffith, and it's great, great writing. I would have known from page four that Nicola has no children. Her three-year-old simply is not plausible as a three-year-old in any time and place. She just isn't. And you have to be consistent with what you're telling me about this character and where this character fits in this time and place. Okay. And you have to be self-consistent, too. All right, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. All right, and third, and this is important, your character must be active. I don't mean they have to go dashing around the landscape, but they have to want something. They can't merely have things happen to them. They have to be the agent of the action, at least some of the time and in some of the ways. Henry James said, character is plot. What he meant by that is how your character reacts to whatever situation you give them is going to drive your plot. You put three people, three different people in the same situation, and they will act three different ways, depending on on who they are. Um, Think of all the different ways that people can confront conflict or problems. What are some of the ways you know that people confront problems when they have one? Basic psychology would say fight or flight, so you've got two choices there. All right, right? let's amplify those. What are some (laughs) of the methods of fight or flight? Confrontation, direct confrontation. All right, angry, direct confrontation. Some people get angry when when they're faced with a problem. More people are sly and manipulative and would... Okay, they try to get somebody else to deal with the problem. problem. This is the let George do it. Sorry, George. This is the let George do it syndrome. How else do people deal? Ignore it. Ignore it. (laughs) Denial. Denial is a big way of dealing with problems. If I close my eyes, maybe it'll go away. How else? Passive aggression. Passive aggression. Blame it on somebody else. How else? Withdrawal. Withdrawal. Flight, running away. Running away. I have a great real-life example of that. We had a supervisor in my office that whenever anyone got into a heated conflict, he would go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Was he just gathering his thoughts, or did he come back and deal with it afterwards? He never came back. (laughs) I'm thinking he had IBS, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) How else do people deal with conflict? And problems. You can you can actually kind of try to solve the problem. Yes, I was waiting for somebody to offer something positive. <laughs> that's that's like my right. job. That's what yeah. I do. Yeah. Uh, you could actually yeah. try to find a solution. Yeah. What else? Diplomacy. 
diplomacy. diplomacy. You can also try to job. create allies in order to try to, to solve these issues. How else? Going postal. Going postal, bring an AK-47 door. <laughs> yes. Drugs, alcohol. Yeah. That's a form of flight, mm, drugs and alcohol. alcohol. Okay. You can try to make an alliance, a coalition, with whoever else causing the problem. You can, this hasn't worked too well for Obama, but you can try. Okay, so there are different ways, and that, that has to do with all of those ways your character is active, even the negative ones. They are doing something. They're not merely being acted on. Although unless you're writing a short story of great futility, which I have done a couple times, you want the character who goes to the bathroom or who flees or blames somebody else to eventually rally, <laughs> and maybe if he's the protagonist anyway, and, and, and face it. But your character does need to be active. They can't merely have things happen to them for the whole length of the story. They can do it initially. Things can happen to them, sometimes for a third of the story, and all they want to do is get out of this situation and be left alone. But eventually they're going to have to turn and deal with this. Okay, finally, a successful character needs to be capable of change. And I want to talk a little bit about this fourth characteristic because it's more controversial. In my opinion, even the shortest story, the protagonist will change in some way. It may be subtle. Now, why do I say that? Because if I'm going to read all the events of your story, if they're not going to affect your character enough to change him, why should they affect me? Why should I care? So, although there are stories where nobody changes, and there's, there's two kinds. There's series stories where they want everybody to reset back to start. I don't really like those very much, but they can be popular. There's also the kind of story where the point is this person is incapable of change. That's, that's okay, but it's a very small subset of stories. There's also the analog story where the, the, the person who solves the problem is the engineer, the scientist, whatever, and they solve the problem and they're not affected because the point was to solve the problem. Not crazy about those stories either, but they, I have to admit there's a market for them. Okay. But in general, your character needs to change in some way. They need to be affected by the events of the story. Okay. How do you do this? In a novel especially, how do you set it up so that the change doesn't seem arbitrary? Okay. There's a technique called Save the Cat. Um, it was invented by Barry Sykes, who was a screenwriter. And what he says is this. If you're going to show a guy who at the beginning of your movie um, seems to be a real soul, and by the end you want him to have be a better person, early on in the screenplay you have him save a cat. The cat runs into traffic and he risks his life to go and pull him out or something like that. You have to show that there is some good in this person somewhere. Not literally save a cat, but although it might be. And then you have to do it in a novel three or four more times. You have to show... Mm -hmm. That, because then we have to see that underneath this character has got some characteristics that will make the change plausible. This is especially true if you're going from a bad guy to a good guy. George Martin is laboring mightily to, to reinstate Jamie Lannister. Um, and turn what with that? <laughs> and he's kind of almost succeeding, in a way. When you see Jamie go back to, rec to uh, rescue Brienne instead of letting her be torn apart by bears. Mm -hmm. you, and when you see the things that he's losing his, arm, his hand has humbled him a little bit. Um, saving Brienne is a saving the cat scene. We're, we're being set up for Jamie eventually, I think, to, to emerge as if not the good guy, at least better than the guy who throws seven-year-old children from castle walls, mm -hmm. as he does in the first one. 
And he's, George is doing it by these saved captains. Now, in a, lo- a shorter story, you don't have time for that. And what happens in a very short story may just be a subtle shift at the end in the way a person looks at something. I won my first Nebula for a story called Out of All the Bright Stars. And at the end, it's a very short story. I, think it's, I don't think it's more than two or 3,000 words. And at the end, as a result of the encounter with this alien, my character, Sally, the waitress, has just had an internal shift in the way she sees the world. That's all. But it's a short, very short story, and that's all that's necessary. Um, one way you can double-check on this is the double arc. All right, I am going to borrow a pen from somebody. Does somebody have a pen? And we don't have a flip chart. I'll draw this here. Okay. This is your story. This is the beginning. The first arc over here is the situation of your story. You should be able to describe what the situation of your story is. In the start of Beggars in Spain, um, my story about the sleepless, the situation is that um, Roger Camden and his wife are genetically engineering a child and, um, to not have to sleep. That's the situation. Okay. The other part of this, the bottom, is the character. In the start of the sleepless, Lysha doesn't exist because she's an embryo yet. But um, you should be able to, a character that does exist, you should be able to describe what your character is like. What is your character like here, over here? This is the end of your story. The situation and the character, you should be able to write two or three sentences about the situation, two or three sentences about the character. They should not be the same ones as at the beginning. And what made the difference, of course, is all of the events of the story. All of the events of the story should have changed the situation and the character from over here to the situation and the character over there. Now, do you automatically know when you start writing what your character's going to end up with? I don't. Um, I have a sort of vague idea, sometimes really, really vague. Um, there are, and this has to do with working method. We're gonna, there's a whole panel tonight at 7.30 on working process. We're replacing another panel from somebody who couldn't come. And it's going to be Greg Frost and Jack Skillingstead and Jim Hines and uh, me all discussing our working method. And since it's four entirely different working methods, it should be interesting. We I would love to come, but unfortunately our reading's at that time. Oh, I am sorry. <laughs> yes, I Shannon. Sorry. You can skip if you really want to. <laughs> it's okay. Well, what I was going to say is, if you don't know, if you don't know how your character is going to end up, that's partly because you're a writer like me, which is that you don't plot the whole thing ahead of time. There are outliners and there are sort of pantsers mm-hmm. who go by the seat of their pants, and you may not know. But when you finished your first draft, you should be able to write those arcs: situation, character, situation, character, and see what has changed. Okay, so to recapitulate so far, four attributes. Individual, how much is your character an individual? Okay. Plausible, is your character consistent? Does what they do hang together? There are certain psychological traits that go well together, and there are certain other psychological traits that don't. And if you have got a, a character whose psychology is going to look bizarre to us, you're going to have to work much harder to explain that character than if it's somebody who the traits go together well. Okay. Active, the agent of their own fate, at least to some degree. Okay. And capable of change. Those are the four attributes. Now, how do you actually create that? Okay. There's two ways you can do this, and they're not exclusive. Creating your character, there's two ways. 
The first is going to sound very mystical, but this is the way I do it. You kind of become the character. Anybody in here have any theater experience? Oh, yeah. Okay. The Stanislavski yeah. method of acting, where you immerse yourself and you become that person when you go on stage. Okay. That's kind of how I write. I try to become that person. Um, again, I said it was mystical, and it is. You try to forget who you are, and it's very zen, and become this other person. <laughs> and then the question is, well, what would I do if I were this person? No, not if I were this person. I am this person. What will I do? All right, that's, that's one way through. Um, the other way through, of course, is to think this out ahead of time. And they're not exclusive. I'm going to give you a handout when I'm done talking here that um, I'm going to ask you to fill out for a character that you're working on right now. And it can be useful to do this ahead of time. It can also be useful to do it as you're writing. Uh, those of us who are pantsers, I tend to write the first couple scenes very fast because they come to me in a sort of blinding flash. And then I have to stop and say, okay, where the hell do I go now? <laughs> That's when I often start thinking about my character in greater depth. All right. But before I give you the handout and we work with it, I want to talk about the character traits that are on it, and I want to talk about it in, in some detail, because this is how you get the character on the page. You may have this character complete in your head. You know everything about this person. You are this person. But the trick is getting it on the page, because your reader does not know what's in your head. Your reader only knows what they see. Okay, here are your tools for doing that. Some of them are simple, some of them are harder. The first is your character's name. You can actually, and this is a simple one, but you can actually begin to set up a lot with your character's name. Names are really important. The character whose name is William Ryan Babington III is not the same character whom you've named Joe Samilski. You have a, a subliminal impression automatically is conveyed with the idea of one of those names. You also can use names in terms of how your, the other characters address your character. You have a character named Diane. Her brother calls her Di-Di because he called her that as a child, and he knows she hates it now, so he still calls her Di-Di. Her boyfriend calls her Kitten, and she doesn't like that either because she doesn't want to be seen as a kitten. She thinks of herself more as a tiger, but he calls her Kitten anyway, and they have a couple quarrels about that. Her mother calls her Diane Alice, because that's her full name, and her mother always liked it, and Diane doesn't like that either. Um, but you can do that. How characters address each other and how the name that you choose for them can tell us a lot. Okay. All right. That's, that sounds simple. Appearance. What you want to put on the page for your character's appearance is not a police report. Six foot two, brown eyes, blue hair, wearing jeans and a dark jacket. This is a police report. That's not what you want. You want to pick one or two characteristics that your character has control of about their appearance. If they've chosen to dye their hair purple, if they've chosen to buy Dana Karen clothes, if they've chosen to wear a t-shirt that says, me or else, you're telling us something about the character that's under their control. Okay, Clothes actually tell us a lot. I look at you, and the combination of the working man's hat and the feminine jewelry tells me something. The, the V-neck, which I love to, which is again a feminine thing, and the jeans convey a certain 
more complex feel for different facets of you than if you were dressed differently. Alison Lurie has a wonderful book called The Language of Clothes. And you might want to just read it, even if you're not interested in clothes, um, just to see what she says clothes can say about you. Uh, Alison Lurie, L-U-R-I-E. Alison Lurie, The Language of Clothes. George has chosen a very bright color here my husband would never wear. My husband <laughs> believes that men only wear dark colors. Um, I once got him into light blue, and he suffered a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it depends. On the other hand, I've seen James Patrick Kelly wandering around in a pink sports coat. Um, Jim, Jim is real preppy, and you can tell from the colors of the clothing that he chews that his prep school background is there. Okay, so clothes say something. Um, so think about what your character is wearing. But if we don't need the whole wardrobe. We don't even need a lot of detail if it's the right detail. Flaubert once said that to create an impression, you only need three details if they're the right details. He was talking about an impression of the whole scene. But you can tell us if you pick the right details. So your character's appearance. Okay. Environment. Their room, their apartment, their tent, their ship's quarters. <laughs> Again, just a couple details. What have they hung on the wall? The teenage girl who has painted her room black hung up pictures of wrappers and um, has a skull as a decoration on her bedside table. It's different from the girl who has painted her room pink and has 14 Hello Kitty dolls or stuffed animals sitting on a shelf. Um, you can, again, if you pick only a couple details, you can tell us something about the person's environment that will characterize them. And your aim here is to do two things. Give us a visual, because you don't want white room syndrome in your, in your stories. White room syndrome is when the, the setting takes place in, in a completely white room. The walls, the ceiling, everything's white. We can't see anything. Um, you can even have white planet syndrome, where I can't tell anything about this place. I'm, I'm editing, I'm line editing and critiquing some stories right now for the Sail to Success cruise, which is a cruise, a riding cruise out of Miami for five days, um, the first week in December, where a bunch of us are teaching aboard. Shahid Mahmood runs this from Art Manor. And I'm, I'm critiquing the manuscripts that we'll be looking at. And I have one story from a student that's actually terrific. It takes place in Afghanistan, and it's clear that he's a vet because the details all feel really, really good. But every single, every single scene has white room syndrome. I can't see the communications hot. I can't see Afghanistan. <laughs> and having never been there, I want to. I can't smell it. I can't sense it at all. So you want to pick the environmental details first for visuals so we have something to look at when we're reading your story, and second, to characterize. And again, you don't need a lot of them, but they should be there. You can also indicate socioeconomic level, and this is true even in a fantasy. Is this hut that your character lives in, when you say a cottage or a hovel or a hut, are you talking about a one-room mud waddle walls with a hole in the middle for fire and no windows? Or are you talking about a snug little stone-floored cottage with, with roses growing over the dormers? And there is a dormer, which means there's more than one story. You know, what, what, Give me some idea what you're talking about here. Is this tent very small, made of skins, and does it leak? Or are we talking about your nomad having a really kind of nice tent, you know? that gets carried along on the ponies and a couple guys set it up, or more likely a couple women, when they get there and there's lots of furs on the floor. I mean, you know, what have we got here? I want to see it. All right. 
Okay. Now, those are the three lesser ones. Now the three biggies. Dialogue. Your dialogue should characterize your character in two ways. What they say and how they say it. The what they say is obviously the content. The how they say it is the words that they choose to say it. That can tell us an awful lot about them. And the right dialogue will sum up a character completely. Again, I'm going to refer to my own work if you don't mind, but Out of All Them Bright Stars, it takes place in a diner. Sally is a waitress, and the aliens have landed a couple weeks before, but she's an ordinary waitress. She doesn't get to see them. There's just a few of them, and they're being, there's one at the, co- the college that's up the road, and they're being very carefully kept in tow, in line by government guys who are surrounding them, the equivalent of secret service. And they, don't, they don't mingle with ordinary people. But one of them walks into her diner. He's escaped his handlers, walked down the road, and he walks into her diner. And obviously she's a little bemused by this, but he sits down, and he orders a salad. And she talks to him. He can speak some English. She talks to him. She doesn't know what to say. I mean, this is way outside her usual purview. But she's trying. They're having this conversation. And before this has happened, actually not before this has happened, but there's a cook and another waitress. The other waitress is very xenophobic. And obviously she's gone back in to tell the cook because the cook comes barreling out of the kitchen. And he doesn't address the alien. But he says to Sally, get him out of here. And Sally says, well, he just ordered a green salad, a large. She hopes that large will placate Charlie, but Charlie doesn't want to be placated. And he says, and then Charlie has the key line that sums up his whole character. He says, get him out of here. The government says i got to serve Spix and others. It doesn't say i got to serve him. We know everything we need to know about Charlie from that one line of dialogue. Okay. If you can do that, if you can find the line of dialogue that sums up attitude, and then reinforce it with some visual details. We will get your character strong. Okay. So pay attention to what they say and how they say it. If Charlie had said instead, Sally, I get to choose the customers I want to choose, and I only choose, I only serve people that I know something about, the effect would be the same, but not really. I mean, the, the result would be the same. You want Sally out of there, the effect is, or the alien out of there. The effect is different. So dialogue. Thoughts are your next big, and this is the one where I critique student manuscripts that I see the most mistakes on. What I see is not enough thoughts. By thoughts, I mean going into your character's point of view, your point of view character's mind, and telling me what they're thinking and feeling. What I see is that some stories can do this. If you're Hemingway, you can do this. The action and the dialogue carry everything. But most of us also want to know how the character feels about the action and, and the dialogue. Because people say things different than they feel. They do it all the time. You know, there was a very funny commercial on TV a few years ago. It was made like a flickering sepia film, like you know, the, the old ones that would flip, uh, the very first ones. And it was Abraham Lincoln. Never mind, he was before that. But this is Honest Abe. And Mary Todd Lincoln comes out and she says, um, Does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> and Honest Abe is struggling because he cannot tell a lie. And it's a very funny commercial. It was for an Abraham Lincoln day sale, you know, a President's Day sale. But it was very funny. But the point, the point that I'm trying to make here is, 
When your thoughts and your dialogue contradict each other, it can be very effective. You know. She leaned closer, breathed into his ear, and laid a kiss on his cheek. That's the, that's the action. And then underline for the thoughts, I want you out of here as fast as I can get you to go. The contrast, they pull in opposite directions. Okay. But even when they don't, I want to know what your character is thinking and feeling. Not just what they're doing, but how do they feel about it? And we talked about the different ways people can react to conflict. People can react enormously different ways to the same situation. Um, and so I, I need to know a little bit more about it. You can't assume that I know what your character is feeling. And this is what I write the most often thing I write in the margins of student manuscripts. Take me deeper into his point of view. Give me, I really want, this is especially true, if you're writing the kind of protagonist you want me to root for. You know, give me a character that I know well enough that I can root for him, that I want to root for him. And your last one, and obviously the biggie, is actions. What does your character do? That's how you're going to build a character. This is why we saved the cat early on, because what the character does is going to tell us more than anything else. This is also why your opening scene should not be a recitation of the bloodlines of the kings and your fantasies, or how the dragons came here, or whatever. It should be characters on stage doing something. You notice the opening of Game of Thrones, the very first scene, is young uh, Bran riding through the forest with his father, who is on his way to stage an execution of one of his own men, whom he thinks is a traitor. The very first scene is a killing. It's from the viewpoint of a seven-year-old, we know what he thinks about this. We know he, well, he's excited when he's going out there. We know he's proud at being taken along for the first time, treated like a man. We know his reactions when the execution actually happens, which are what you'd expect from a seven-year-old who's trying to be brave and be a man, but he's seven. We're, we're deep in his point of view. And we also have for the environment the pervasive cold, because this is Winterfell. And we feel the cold at every turn. It's almost a character. And then they say, winter is coming. The first time I saw that, I said, it's coming? It's not here already? The cold is... And that's a very effective thing. Okay. So you want your opening character, your opening scene especially, to, to name some action. The best thing you can do for your opening scene is get a couple people, not one, a couple people on stage doing something and talking to each other. Why they're doing it can come clear later. The background can come clear later. Open with people on stage doing something. Okay. All right. I have thrown a lot of stuff at you so far, half an hour's worth. Who has something, questions, or anything they want to say about this? All right. I want you to think of the protagonist of whatever you're writing now, the point of view character, okay? And I want you to take a little bit of time to fill these out for your character, the character you have right now. I'll just let them go passing around. Take ten minutes or so. The easy stuff's up front. If you can't answer something, leave it blank, and you can think about it later. I, this is somebody's pen. It's not, I borrowed this from somebody. Hey, did you learn anything about your character that you didn't know before? Anybody? What did you learn, George? That what he wants is not focused enough. What I learned. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anybody learn anything and discover anything you didn't know about your character? He thinks he's civic-minded. And is, is he? In a twisted sense, yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Others would disagree. Okay. That sounds actually very promising. <laughs> I, I learned that the... It changed the way I thought about the, the relationship my character would have with, with her family. Okay. It would cause friction. The issues she was dealing with would actually cause a great deal of friction with her family. Okay, maybe you want to bring some of that friction into the, into the narrative yeah. then. Okay. This kind of thing is especially good to do for your villain. I want to talk a little bit now about villains or antagonists or whatever you want to call them. In science fiction, we have a, an unfortunately lamentable tradition of throwing villains out there who are just evil for the sake of people. And although I, there probably are guys walking around who are evil for the sake of evil, they don't think so. And the most interesting villains have got just as elaborate personalities and justifications as your protagonist. It can be extremely illuminating to fill out <coughs> this for your villain, for the bad guy. Um, how does he see himself? What does he love? What does he fear? Um, what, what kinds of things go on for inside him? Because they all have their justifications. Hitler actually thought he was making the world a better place. He was going to impose order. He was going to bring Germany back to its full glory. He was going to eliminate a race that he considered to be um, negative, having a negative effect on the world. He actually thought he was doing a good thing. He was also a megalomaniac who was glorifying himself. But those things can go on at the same time. Um, those two kids who shot up Columbine starting this spate of school shootings had their own justification. If you look at the tapes or the, the things they left behind, these, these kids thought that they would be winning respect for themselves and they would be remembered um, with respect that they hadn't ever gotten before. One of them actually says that, Dylan Klebold. Won't it be great to finally get the respect we deserve? He says this on tape to the other one. They actually have justifications for what they're doing. And it can be interesting to fill out something like this for your villains and to try to see that they are worthy protagonists, antagonists for your good guys, that they're not just out there to create havoc in the plot. Okay, I'm going to give you a short writing exercise now. I want you to write for a paragraph, and all you get is four sentences, okay? For, in a totally objective viewpoint... Outside, just actions. No dialogue, no thoughts, just actions and descriptions. Of a, a bad person doing something bad. Now, you can define that for yourself. It can be um, a querulous old man poisoning the dog next door who's sitting on his lawn, if you want. Or it can be a Hitler plotting to take, doing something that's going to lead towards plotting to take over the world. Um, but we're only going to see this from the outside. Four sentences of description of somebody doing something bad, okay? However you want to define bad. It doesn't have to be from your story. Pick, pick a, a character. Think of a character. You've all seen people do things that are bad. Think of a, a person doing something bad, small bad or big bad or medium bad. Give me four sentences of it, of description, action. Character doing something bad. No more than four sentences. It's just description? Yep. And action, which is description in motion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> From the outside, no thoughts, no dialogue. Just a, descri 
somebody doing something bad. And you define bad. Putting your razor blade in the Halloween apple. Whatever. <coughs> Cop beating up a suspect. Whatever you want. Four sentences, and they shouldn't be Henry James sentences either, long and twisted with <laughs> multiple dependent clauses. It's hard not to put thoughts. Can't no thoughts right now, just the character, just what we would see, what a security camera would see. Okay, now I want you to write another four sentences describing this same action from how it looks inside the character's head. The justification. Why is this person doing what they're doing? Now, first person, give me the first person, right in the eye, first person of the character doing it and why they think they're doing it. How it looks to them from the inside. Start with I. I, they have a reason for doing this awful thing. You shouldn't get more than four or five sentences here either. Let's hear the first, the objective security camera version, and then the internal one. All right, the security camera was Lewis traced a finger down the girl's ear and gave a slight pinch at her lobe. He leered at her. His gaze started her hips and moved to her bust. Lewis released her ear and rubbed his thumb and fingers together. Okay, let's hear the internal. Okay. There's a sexual harassment policy at this time, yeah. you know. <laughs> Right here. Right here. Well, and these guys asked for it, so here we go. Yes. This is from yesterday. So, <clears throat> I believe we can find a better solution than hunting Dutch pirates. She's sitting right in front of me, and the Dutch more than willing are more than willing to traffic children. I think they wouldn't mind parting with a few of their own. Okay. And you should intersperse that with the actions. Yeah. You know what he says when he does what he does where. Okay. All right. Anybody else? I'll do it. Okay, Catherine. Okay. Sophia placed the nightgown. She was sewing on her lap. She held the scissors underneath the white muslin in her right hand, tuning out Carlo's voice. He knelt. She pushed the shears through the nightgown and plunged them into his stomach. Well, okay. Let's hear what, <laughs> wow. what Sophia actually is going on here. I have been selfish. God will not allow me to let this boy live. His father was a demon, and he is part of his father. God help me that I'm doing this for the best. Well, that's interesting. Okay. I would actually like to read more of that. I mean, that makes that makes perfect sense. It's the book Walter told me to write. <laughs> okay. <laughs> have to do what Walter says. Anybody else? I'll do it. Okay. The dictator stepped onto the balcony, lording over his subjects below. The adoration proved brief as he plummeted onto their heads. The crowd parted in a panic, allowing him to fall to the ground. Thus ended the shortest reign in the history of the kingdom. Okay. <laughs> I wonder how he lorded it over. Did he raise his arms? Yeah, and, yeah I want, uh, you need more. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, but now give me the interloper. Okay. The interloper had chosen the wrong place on the balcony to lord over his subjects below. A brief shove was all it took to send him back to his adoring throng. And why not? He had made the choice to enter my palace. I merely showed him the way out. Okay, all right. <laughs> we want to know, I would want to know if this shover here is actually justified in this or if he just wants his own power back. Mm -hmm. And the whole story would have to show me that, whether because right. I'd have to form an opinion of right. this dictator. Okay. I mean, should he be shoved off the palace or the balcony or not? Okay. 
I also want to hear the splat when he lands. <laughs> I want more visuals there. Oh. Okay, anybody else? Shannon? I'll go. I, um, I'm a little low on this one. The clerk laid her hands flat on the counter, looked blankly at the old man, and said, I'm sorry, sir, but the restrooms are for employee use only. There is a gas station down the street. Fifteen minutes later, as she mopped up a pool of urine, she rolled her eyes and said, some people. Okay, now let's hear the internal. I hate it when people come in, don't even buy something, and then ask for a favor. The last time I let someone into the employee bathroom, they spread shit all over the walls, and I'm not going to clean that up again. Okay. You see, there's justification for this. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? You don't have to. Now, I never ask people that don't want you to to share what things we write spontaneously, because there are spontaneous writers, and there are people who have to take. The point here is that even the villains, if you can fill out the mini bio for the villains, and you have a better sense of them, they need to have their own justifications as much as the protagonist does. I haven't left too much time for questions here, but does anybody have any on anything? I've thrown an awful lot of information at you in one hour. Well, then the best of luck with all of your various novels and other projects. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>